It's Halloween night, five minutes before the midnight hour, the time of year when the veil between the living and the dead is stretched as thin and translucent as the gauze of a decaying funeral shroud. You're standing alone in the isolated, long-abandoned cemetery of the old Elgin State Mental Hospital for the Insane. A wall of trees, thick hedges, and wire fencing completely hide the cemetery from view of the golf course and soccer fields surrounding it, hiding this secret burial ground. Fog sluggishly pools among the 970 identical squat concrete gravestones laid in thin rows stretching down the length of a football field and vanishing into the darkness. But you know that the number of gravestones is deceptive. For under every single stone lie two, three, five bodies stacked on top of each other. The stones bear the names of only the last person buried in the grave. The others have been forgotten. It's Halloween night, four minutes before the midnight hour. Best estimates say there are thousands of tormented souls buried here around you, all patients of the asylum during the years when the abuse, experiments, and brutal inhumanity got so bad system-wide, every asylum was like Auschwitz in America. You walk down one row of graves, disturbing the pools of fog into swirling eddies of mist. Very few of the stones record birth dates, even on the most recent burials in the 1980s. Among those, you're shocked to see children buried here, even babies. Born here, products of rape, who knew no other world than the asylum. As for the other stones, were these human beings considered so insignificant that no one bothered to record in stone the day they came into this world? It's Halloween night, three minutes before the midnight hour. And you can't believe you were stupid enough to actually take them up on their dare to stand alone in this 150-year-old cemetery filled with unknown thousands of ghosts from the insane asylum. And not just the lost souls of the asylum, those outcast by birth defects, the homeless and orphaned, the addicts and depressed who fell victim to their demons by overdose and suicide. No, those spirits you could deal with. But this particular asylum also held the criminally insane. Psychopathic serial killers, cannibals, violent maniacs, sadistic pedophiles, pure incarnations of evil on earth. Like John Wayne Gacy, the killer clown who sexually assaulted, tortured, and murdered at least 33 teenage boys in the Chicago area during the 1970s. He was held here at the Elgin, Illinois Asylum all during his trial. After his execution, the county secretly disposed of his body to prevent any sick admirers from making pilgrimages to his grave. It's still a mystery today as to where he's buried. Maybe he's here with you right now, dressed in his clown costume, rope in hand, offering to tie you up. Come on, it'll be fun. It's Halloween night, two minutes before the midnight hour. Coyotes howl on the golf course and you nearly jump out of your shoes. You laugh, but stop short, bothered at how nervous you sound. 
you turn on your EMF meter, the electrical magnetic field sensor. A typical piece of equipment in any electrician's toolbox, it detects and measures electrical energy. Paranormal investigators believe ghosts are made of electrical energy, specifically the bioelectricity that runs through every living body, runs through our nervous system, feeds our muscles, burrows through the jelly of our brains to generate thoughts, ideas, memories, intelligence, the literal spark of life, electricity strong enough to light a 100-watt light bulb. So when the body dies, what happens to all that electricity? Does it just wink out, like turning off a light switch? Or, like our blood, flesh, and bone, does it take a while to decay? And once out of the insulating layer of blood, flesh, and bone, can it be picked up by normal electrical sensors, like your EMF meter? Electricians will tell you that there are free-floating clouds of electrical energy all around us, but they don't know where they come from. Could they be remnants of the dead? It's Halloween night, one minute before the midnight hour. The fog is lifting higher now. It's swallowing up those gravestones that weren't already half sunken in the earth as the stacks of pine coffins rot beneath them. Individual billows of fog rise to nearly the height of a person and hang suspended underneath the black trees by ropes of shadow. A cloud darkens the face of the moon. As if waiting for that moment, a man-sized shadow darts away out of the corner of your eye where you could have sworn there was nothing standing there before. You turn, your heart pumping hard with adrenaline, but then another motion out of the corner of your other eye scurries across the field and into the brush, and you hear some kind of noise from it. What the hell was that? The fog lies still. But something had moved through it. At least you thought so. You remember that this cemetery is famous for ectofog, a rather silly word for an eerie phenomenon. Clouds of mist that move against the wind or appear in one photo but are gone in the next, taken immediately after. The hair on the back of your neck lifts when you notice that the strange fogs suspended over the graves look human. It's like they're watching you with glassy, dead eyes. You fall in silent staring out over the moonlit scene and mounting hysteria, wondering, is there a ghost of a psychotic, blood-drinking serial killer standing before you, ready to attack? Three seconds, two, one, it's midnight! My name is Diane Ladley, America's ghost storyteller, and you're listening to Hysteria. It's history that excites the demons in a madman's brain. And aren't we all a little bit mad? This episode is entitled Midnight in the Asylum Cemetery, Part 1, The Horror. It 
delves into the history of asylums in America, from their beginnings as sanctuaries of peace and beauty for the most vulnerable and dangerous among us, to their slow degeneration into places of darkest nightmare and monstrous cruelty under a mask of compassion. I give special focus on one asylum in particular, in Elgin, Illinois, since my ghost tour company, Haunted Hometowns, has the privilege of giving haunted history tours inside the asylum's old cemetery at night. A cemetery that is the final resting place for those patients who had no other home, or who were so outcast and reviled their family refused to accept them even after death. This first episode relates the horrific history of asylums during their most infamous years. Episode 2 explores the hauntings at the Elgin Pauper's Cemetery and old asylum buildings. In that episode, you'll hear untouched recordings of actual tours during which we had inexplicable encounters that raised goosebumps on us all. It'll be as if you're right there, experiencing those goosebumps for yourself. But first, a little history of asylums in America. Prior to the mid-19th century, Americans treated the mentally ill worse than animals. They were chained naked in kennels with dogs, locked up behind bars in windowless attics or dank cellars, and kept imprisoned for their entire lives. But starting in the 1840s, reformer Dorothea Dix and psychologist Thomas Kirkbride were instrumental in vastly improving the lives of the mentally ill. What if, they said, we could put these poor tortured souls out in the country where the air is fresh, put them in clean, spacious apartments with north-south exposure to get warm, pure sunshine all day, buildings with beautifully landscaped grounds with trees, flowers, and ponds, and give them a farm so they could have the satisfaction of growing their own food, raising their own livestock, enjoying good nutrition and a wholesome environment and hire compassionate, well-trained nurses and doctors to care for them with the latest medical treatments and cures. What if we did all that to America's mentally ill? Would that calm the demons in their brains? Kirkbride designed such idyllic homes, these asylums, and they were built in towns all across America. Elgin, Illinois was thrilled to receive the honor of having such a facility in their town. The Northern Illinois Hospital and Asylum for the Insane opened in 1872. The asylum was meant to be a major job creator for the growing town, but it was a town within the town, up to 1,139 acres at its site, with a prosperous farm and dairy cows, its own post office, firehouse, and more, mostly all worked by the patients themselves, not by Elgin job seekers. The patients weren't paid since work was meant as therapy. The asylum kept their own records of births and deaths separate from the city records and didn't report to the city at all. So, just like the townsfolk in Auschwitz, Germany, the residents of Elgin, Illinois, were kept mostly in the dark as to what was happening at the far outer fringes of their city. For the first 20 years, all was well. Kirkbride's dream was actualized, and the asylum was hailed as a great success. Ooh, ooh, ooh. 
but it became overcrowded. So an annex was built with an additional 300 beds, but after only four years, that too was maxed out beyond what they could hold. They began turning people away, but the state said, no, 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 you're funded by us, and as such, our laws say you must take in everyone. Oh, and by the way, we're cutting your budget in half. That was the turning point, when the dream of an idyllic haven to help our most vulnerable ended and was reborn as our darkest nightmare. They jammed patients into the asylum, stuffed them into the asylum, crammed them into the asylum. Patients slept in between and under the beds. They lined the hallways, were curled up on stairs, and in any tiny corner they could squeeze a human body. The Elgin State Mental Hospital had about 1,300 beds. By 1955, the average daily census of patients was 7,644. And it wasn't just in Elgin. Oh, far from it. In asylums everywhere, the overcrowding, filth, stench, and unsanitary conditions were unspeakable. Patients in restraints and chains were left to lie in their own human waste for weeks. Disease was rife, sweeping through the wards, killing patients off by the hundreds. Mold grew on their unwashed bodies. Wounds were neglected and uncleaned, so people needlessly died as sepsis and gangrene rotted their flesh away before their horrified eyes. true horror was that many of these patients were perfectly sane. It was society, not psychiatry, that determined who was committed. If you were born with a noticeable birthmark on your face, or cleft palate, or dwarfism, or with Down syndrome, or simply have low intelligence, or were caught masturbating, you would be considered morally corrupt. Your family would take you to the asylum and leave you there for the rest of your life. Drug addicts, alcoholics, homosexuals, epileptics, obese people were also considered mentally ill and committed to the asylums. After World War I, asylums received a flood of soldiers diagnosed with what we now call post-traumatic stress syndrome, but back then was called shell shock or male hysteria. Instead of respect and compassion, these men were reviled for being cowards, weak, not having the manly mental strength to withstand the horrors of war, a war that held atrocities unlike any other before. But the vast majority of asylum patients were women. Society considered the female sex to be weak and poo-pooed their very real complaints with insulting condescension, even open contempt Women suffering from pre- and postnatal depression or pre- or post-menstrual stress were regularly committed to the insane asylum. No PMS jokes, please. Not about this. Because it got worse. If a wife ran away from an abusive husband, he could forcibly take her back, file kidnapping charges against those she ran to for help, and commit her to the asylum for as long as he wanted until she learned her lesson. The reasoning was that 
She had to be insane for leaving her lawful, loving husband. Once committed to the asylum, women were easy prey for the serial rapists, psychopaths, and other violent mental patients they had to share very small space with. Patient-on-patient murders were not recorded. Rape was an everyday occurrence. Patient-on-patient, staff-on-patient. With budgets slashed to a pittance, asylums couldn't afford good help. Most attendants never had any kind of medical training, and many couldn't even speak English. Some other attendants willingly volunteered or worked there for pennies because they had their own sick agendas. With so many children freely available in asylums, it was a pedophile's dream. And any patient who dared to stop him would be called a liar, delusional, and punished for laying hands on an attendant. And the punishments were brutal. Beatings, restraints, starvation, humiliation, electrocution, and more, often so severe they died. For example, if a patient had a habit of biting people, usually when fighting against being restrained, they'd get two warnings. On the third offense, they'd be dragged to the asylum's dentist office and every tooth in their mouth would be pulled out. For their own safety, of course. Treatments were studies in arrogance, ignorance, and barbarity. The goal was ostensibly to cure them, but now they're the basis for today's horror movies. The definition of a successful cure was when the patient became calm and compliant, stopped fighting. Treatments generally broke down into three categories. One, psychosurgery, the most famous being frontal lobotomies, but also included drilling holes in the skull or, to stop obsessive thoughts from running continuously in the mind, cutting out whole parts of the brain. The second category of treatment, psychiatric medications. Starting in the 1950s, drugs such as Thorazine were the new medicinal lobotomies, sedating agitated patients into drooling, shuffling zombies. In other words, a success! Thankfully, today's medications define success much differently. The third category of treatment, convulsive therapies. Medical science insisted you could jolt a patient out of their medical illness. The shock would reset the brain or nervous system to its default setting. The stronger the seizure or the deeper the coma, the more therapeutic it was for the patient. So if it wasn't successful the first time, that indicated that they needed even stronger, deeper shocks to the system on the second go-around, and the third, fourth, and so on. Patients died from electroconvulsive therapy, literally cooked to death under massive jolts of electricity at stronger settings and longer applications administered by assistants with no training in it at all. Another method of shock therapy was deep sleep therapy. This treatment used drugs to knock the patient out completely for 10 days at a time while the body starved. Hydrotherapy, like saunas or cold baths, can feel very nice, but not when chained down and forced to endure hot steam or ice baths for hours, capped off with ice water enemas and douches. 
insulin coma therapy combined both convulsive and drug therapy. This treatment, used up through the 1960s, was for patients deemed strong enough to endure the treatment, though there were no medical guidelines. These patients were injected with up to 450 units of insulin. This dose is extreme, even for most diabetics, and they did not have diabetes. The injections were given every day, six days a week, for two months. On every seventh day, they were given electroshock therapy. Again, the deep comas and violent seizures that the drug invariably caused were considered therapeutic. If the patient didn't outright die from insulin coma therapy, the irreversible brain damage was considered a successful cure because the patient was no longer hostile or undesirably tense. But they also had a host of new problems, like gross obesity and hypoglycemia when the insulin was stopped. Some asylums, such as at Elgin, were also institutes for training and research. For those asylum residents who couldn't work on the farm or whose family couldn't or wouldn't pay for their confinement, it was expected that they would earn their keep by being used for training purposes or experimentation. Lab rats, in other words, whether the patients knew it or not. Some experiments seem to have had little to do with helping the mentally ill, one such experiment injected subjects with syphilis and malaria without the patient's consent or knowledge of what these shots were. The theory was that the two viruses would kill each other off and voila, we'd have a cure for both deadly diseases. Instead, turns out that those two viruses get along great together. So it was hard to tell which disease eventually killed the patients. Another experiment that ran from 1931 to 1933 was to inject unknowing Elgin Asylum patients with radium-266 for up to 42 weeks. They died of bone cancer in agonizing pain. Male patients were given early forms of birth control pills, but the doctors were so horrified when the men developed breasts that the experiment was terminated early. You're probably asking yourself, how? How? Could these doctors and nurses sworn to help people have so abused the patients entrusted to their care? Easy. Throughout the 19th and 20th centuries, up until around the 1970s, it was an accepted medical fact that the mentally ill didn't feel extreme cold or heat or pain like normal humans do. If a patient screamed as her teeth were being pulled out, don't feel bad. She didn't really feel anything. She was only mimicking what normal people do. So they didn't bother with anesthesia. Hey, they saved all kinds of money. Authority figures teaching the naive that certain people aren't human. That's how compassion turns to contempt. That's how those long-ago doctors and nurses were able to look themselves in the mirror every day and go to work at asylums from coast to coast just how German Nazi soldiers did the same at concentration camps. Auschwitz in America. In defense of those doctors and nurses, their jobs were hell. The average ratio was typically one nurse for every 300 mentally ill patients, all of whom required intensive care, few got it. Nurses themselves were in danger of being molested and raped by patients, even killed. 
Surrounded by the worst of humanity's madnesses, pain, and sadism, the burnout rate for nurses and volunteers was sky high. Either they left the job, or they succumbed to hardening their hearts against their patients' suffering. Take the account of one former nurse. I worked at the Elgin State Mental Hospital in 62, and everything you've heard about the place is true. I sometimes assisted in shock therapy and ice therapy with no training at all when patients got out of control. Young children were dropped off there sometimes, and just thrown into wards with about 80 other patients of all ages and simply left to fend for themselves. Doctors eventually saw them after a few weeks and then once a month or so afterwards. I remember a boy about 10 years old who had been strapped to his bed, hands and feet, for about seven years, 24 hours a day, and no one paid any attention to him. I remember another patient biting chunks of flesh out of catatonic patients' necks and laughing. He'd go from one to the other until he was stopped. I remember wards with patients screaming in some kind of agony in the middle of the night. No one paid attention to them. One day, I caught my boss beating a patient in the head with a tin cup, blood running down the patient's face. The patient spent all day shouting, Give me a cigarette! Give me a cigarette! That's all he would ever say. And my boss, as he was beating him, kept shouting, Shut up! I reported him and was fired immediately. I remember the dungeon-like cells they put problematic patients in. I remember the confused and lonely patients there. Back then, you could simply commit a family member to the place with no interference. Most obviously ill patients were just dropped off in front and left there. It's the saddest place I can remember, and I'll never forget it. This episode, Midnight in the Asylum Cemetery, Part 1, The Horror, was written and produced by me, Diane Ladley, America's Ghost Storyteller. If you like it, please take a second to give it a good rating. Then send the podcast link out to all your friends to download it for free. You'll find a list of reference sources for this episode, suggested readings, and music and sound effects credits on the History Podcast Facebook page. There you could also become our valued VIP patron by clicking on the Shop Now button. I know it should say Donate Now, but there's a glitch in Facebook. It tells me I can do it, but it doesn't. Facebook drives me insane. Donating is entirely optional. Subscribing to Hysteria will always be free. But patrons will get exclusive swag and very special extras that non-patrons will never see. Donation levels start at just $1 for every new episode. That's a dollar every three weeks. And believe me, I would be thrilled to get that dollar. Thank you in advance for your support of future Hysteria episodes. Speaking of which... Don't miss part two of Midnight in the Asylum Cemetery, which delves into the intense hauntings at the old Elgin State Mental Hospital buildings and graveyard. That episode features actual, untouched recordings of mysterious paranormal activity that we captured there during several ghost tours. And as always, thanks for listening to Hysteria. It's history that excites the demons in a madman's brain. And aren't we all a little bit mad?